Good morning. So I am excited and uh, always humbled to be able to come up here and uh, share what God has given me today. And uh, today is no different. Um, so just to flash my uh, youth pastor badge here for a second, we continue to work through the book with. Um, and, I, and about a year ago, Pastor Mark brought this book and he said, as a staff team, we're going to kind of journey through this. And for me, germ, or, uh, books are kind of like germs, like through college, I read so many books, and this is a horrible attitude, by the way, but through college, I read so many books that I was like, oh, no, I'm being forced to read a book again. And quickly, what I realized through the whole thing is, you know what, books are great. And as I dived into this book, um, I just quickly realized how many of these postures I actually find myself in uh, throughout my own life. And it's not that some of these things are bad, um, but it's when we apply them and, and make them our everything um, that we're truly missing out and they become bad. So, what does it mean to live a life over God? When I think of being over something, a couple things come to my mind. I know when I was a teenager and I would date a girl, and then she would often break up with me for various reasons, I would be like, I'm so over that, you know, I'm over her, I'm over it. Or if you're, if you're done with a relationship, if you're done with something, maybe you're quitting something, McDonald's, not for me, I always mention McDonald's because I love it so much. But if you're over something, you have removed yourself from the situation, you are kind of putting aside your feelings, you no longer need it. Or at least you tell yourself that. Another thing I think of when, I, when you're over something is this. Uh, for instance, Pastor Mark is my supervisor, he's my boss, he is over me. Many of us have, have bosses that, that oversee us, they are at a higher rank than us. And quite honestly, that is kind of the, the crux of life over God, and we'll get into that here today. I kind of remember as a kid, I, I, being over something. I remember being a little guy, and, and I had this, this mullet. I had the sides of my head shaved and, and a long mullet out the back, and I was this little troublemaker kid, and, and I always wore oiler shirts, and I was this crazy, crazy kid. And my mom had so many rules for me because I caused so much trouble. I was always venturing off to different parts of the store, and she couldn't contain me. And I knew that I wasn't ever to leave her side because often I was going to find myself in trouble if I did. So I remember one time my mom actually like came and she's like, okay, Ryan, let's go to the store. And I was like, what are you, what are you holding? And it was this leash. So she got, she got one of those leashes that you, you like clip onto my coat so that I, I couldn't run away from her anymore in the store. Like I, I would like start and take off and I'd feel like this titan of the, of the leash. And I, and I quickly realized, one, how bad it is being a dog. People are often like, you know, dogs, they just relax all day and get pet. But those leashes aren't fun. And the other part of me, I was like, you know what, like, I'm kind of over this whole control thing. I'm being controlled by my mom. I'm three years old. I, can, I don't even know. Maybe I was like 16. I don't know. I, I, can't, I can't figure out why she's controlling me, and I have to escape this. So what did I do? I was like, okay, you know what, Ryan? You're three years old. You can probably venture for yourself in this, in this whole store. You can, you can figure it out. So I quickly found a way when she wasn't looking to unclip my leash, which I feel like they should be designed better so that a three-year-old can't unclip the leash, but I did. And I said, you know what, I'm, I'm, I'm over it. And, and I got away and I hid under one of those, those metal racks that they hang clothes on. And I just hid under there and I was like kind of looking underneath and I was like, there, I can see your feet and you know, I'm over it. So, you know, I'm done with that whole thing. And then she left and she went to customer service and I heard my name being called over the thing. And I quickly realized how, how scared I was. I didn't know where she was anymore. I was calling over her, she wasn't answering me. And I was like, what did I do? Three years old, I was so bored, I was so over something that, that, I, that I unclipped my leash, I left her presence, I left her, her supervision, I hid under a coat rack, and boy, did I find myself 
in some trouble. And that's kind of the, the idea of a life over God. When I was in school, I remember I grew up in, as, a, as a church kid. I grew up with a Christian family, Christian parents who raised me in church. And, and as I got older, I, I started to learn about these, these other people who, who didn't believe there was a God. Uh, we, we refer to them as atheists or, or people who have no faith whatsoever in a God existing. Um, and it's for various reasons. Maybe it's, it's a lifetime of hurt or they've, they've experienced pains or difficulties in their life and they just can't connect themselves to a loving God. Some people, it, it's reason. They, they just have come to the, the, through science and through experiences and through finding things that work. Or maybe it's things in their own life. Like, you know, I think I got it from here. Like, I don't need, I don't need a God. There's no creator. Nothing. Atheists. I had a great atheist friend, one of the kindest people I've ever met in my whole life. And I asked him one time, I was like, so what makes you an atheist? And he said, you know, I just, I, I, I love science and I love figuring things out and there's so many principles on the earth and there's just so many things that we can predict happening and, and you know what, the other stuff, the good stuff, maybe it's just chance. But I've come to the, uh, the conclusion that, that there is no God because, you know, I think as a 24-year-old or however old he was at the time, I got it. I can control this. I'm big enough, no matter what comes, that I can control my circumstances or my situations. Atheism. No God. We don't need it. And here's the point I want to make today. Many Christians, many of us are Christians, we, we profess and, and believe in Jesus. Many of us who, who attend church can actually possess the same life over God attitude that an atheist does. And, and I'm not saying that you don't believe in God, but what I'm saying is through certain decisions, through different circumstances in your life, you have completely removed yourself from, from a sovereign God who overlooks and, and, and oversees your life. It happens in my life, and maybe you just aren't realizing it, and, and that's what we're trying to dig into here today. So those kind of people, I, I think they've kind of taken a, a step back. Uh, they think God, sorry, has taken a step back. And, and think of it like this. I don't know if you've heard of the watchmaker model. Um, but Jathani re references it in his book, and it's almost like, okay, so when God was creating the earth, the earth is a watch. And God put the principles, he put the laws, he put gravity, he put the sun, he put the time of day, everything onto the earth, and he wound up his watch, and he set it down on the table, and he stepped back. And now what God does is he sees the watch tick, he sees time change, he sees, sees things happen, but he doesn't have his hands on the watch, he has nothing to do with it. It's the watchmaker model. And what this is, is called deism. So deism is accepting the existence of a creator on the basis of reason, but rejecting the belief in a supernatural deity who interacts with mankind. So, so it's basically like saying, like I said, you, you think God, is, he created the earth, he created all the laws, he created us, but now he has completely removed himself from the situation. He steps back and he kind of watches us go at it, he watches us mess up, he watches us fail, but he doesn't have anything to do with it. I've often heard of, of, of our, our Bibles as, as the handbook of life. It's, it's an instruction manual. There's an acronym for Bible, basic instructions before leaving earth. And this is where we get into trouble. In a Christian worldview with, with deism and with a life over God. Jathani puts it like this. It says, instead of using the Bible as a vehicle for communing with God, we use it to find applicable principles. Christianity becomes a form of Christian deism. 
So, so that, that handbook, it's like almost like we have the instruction manual for our faith. Why, we don't need a mechanic anymore. We can fix it ourselves. We have the instruction manual. We can go into the engine of our car, the engine of our lives, our own hearts. We can fix some things by ourselves. God's given us the instructions, but we don't really need him anymore. It's a form of Christian deism that we, that we can form in our own hearts and in our own minds without even realizing it. Here's an example. Thomas Jefferson is the president of the United States. And what Thomas Jefferson did is he took his own Bible and he actually took a penknife and cut portions of scripture out of his Bible so he liked it more. He took out a lot of the miracles and, and he had some of the good stuff in there and, and there's a picture of his Bible here. You can literally see he cut excerpts out just so it, it said kind of what he wanted it to say. He didn't like some of the stuff. He didn't really feel like he was, he was being pulled to, to, to listen to that. But other stuff, for sure. So he kept that. It's an 84-page volume that he, that he produced in 1820, six years before he died, and it's called The Life and Morals of Jesus of Nazareth. It's a form, a form of deism. He's completely removed himself from, from God's holy, authentic word that is God-breathed, the whole thing, and he's made it his own. He believed a lot of it was valuable and useful, and he applied parts of it to his life. But in doing so, he left out complete other parts. A life over God mentality is one that he took. And here's kind of a thought I, I want to I encourage you with today. We seek to unlock complete control to obtain complete freedom. We seek to un obtain complete control. We want to have our hands on everything so that we can control what happens in order that we can get complete freedom. We can be free of everything that causes us fear or doubt or worry. That's what we're after. But in doing so, we're neglecting the only one who holds the keys. So we strive to unlock complete control, to obtain complete freedom. But in doing so, we neglect the only one who holds the keys. So today I want to jump in um, to a couple stories found in the Old Testament. The first one is Numbers 17. Story of Moses and the rock. And I love this story. Um, and, and it's encouraging to read this portion of it. So that the people were thirsty. And, and, and it says that they were, they were obeying God's command. They were following Moses out, out, of, the, out of the wilderness. And, and, they were, and all of a sudden they realized how thirsty they, they in fact were. And they kind of got ticked off at Moses, and they're like, you know what, Moses, like, how, how, we're, we're, here we are obeying the Lord. We are obeying God, and you're leading us out here, and we're thirsty. We're, we're literally dying of thirst as time goes on. Our children are dying. Our livestock is dying. What are you doing? Moses found himself between a rock and a hard place. No pun intended. He says, he cried out to God. He said, what, what am I supposed to do with these people? You know, they're ready to stone me. I, I don't know what to do. I can't produce water out of the desert. I, I, I'm, I'm at my wit's end. I don't know what to do, God. What do I do? I'm trying to follow you. I'm doing my best. What do I do? And the Lord answered Moses. And he says, go out in front of the people and take with you some of the elders of Israel and take in your hand the staff with which you struck the Nile and Go. I will stand there before you by the rock at Horeb, strike the rock, and water will come out of it for the people to drink. So Moses did. He went and he took his staff just as the Lord told him to do, and he struck the rock, and from it water flowed. God stood upon that rock with him, and when Moses struck it, water flowed out and satisfied the people. 
And in that moment, it, it wasn't Moses who, who was the one who, who, who was causing them to be thirsty. But their blame for God, they took it out on Moses, and he was afraid, and he cried out to God. And in that, God came to him, and he answered him, and he says, take your staff, strike that rock, and from it water will flow, and it will satisfy the people's needs, and they will lay off of you. And we jump to Numbers 20. Very, very similar story here. Moses is with Aaron, and he finds himself again under attack. The people are saying very much the same things. They're saying, you know, what are we doing? Here you are. You're leading the Lord's people out into the wilderness, and we're thirsty. Our children are dying. We're dying. Our livestock is dying. What am I to do? What are we to do? How could you do this to us? And again, Moses is so, he, he finds himself again between a rock and a hard place and, and he, he's afraid and he can't control their thirst. He doesn't know what's happening. He's, he's, God, I'm trying to be faithful to you. I'm trying to follow you. I'm trying to obey you. Here I am leading these people and now they're all angry at me again. What am I to do? And it says that, that Moses and Aaron, they went and they fell on their faces in front of the Lord. This is no small issue. They, they got down in, in, in reverence of God. They fell on their faces and they, they pleaded with him. They said, please, God, help, help us. These people are coming after us. We're afraid. We don't know what to do. And the Lord appeared and he said to Moses, he said, take the staff and you and your brother Aaron gather the assembly together. Speak to that rock before their eyes and it will pour out its water. You will bring water out of the rock for the community so they and their livestock can drink. So he tells him, he says, okay, so here, here I am again. It's Okay. Here I am. Go and speak to that rock this time. And from it, water will flow out and it will satisfy the people's thirst. So Moses, he, he took the staff from the Lord's presence just as he commanded him to do. And he and Aaron gathered the assembly together in front of the rock. And Moses said, listen up, you rebels. Really, must, must we bring water to you from this rock? Do we really have to do that? You know, God and I, do we really have to do that? Then Moses raised his arm, and he struck the rock twice with his staff. Not just once, but twice. And water started gushing out in the community, and their livestock drank. So here again, the people's needs were met. They were satisfied. Water was given to them. You see, you see Moses, he, he, that staff of his, it had done a lot of great things. It had turned into a snake before Pharaoh's magicians. It had touched the water of the Nile and the river turned into blood. As we all know, Moses used his staff. He raised it and the sea parted so that they could flee on, on dry land. This, this staff, God had, 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 had used his power through this staff so many times before. We saw it again in the rock. He struck the rock. Water flowed. But this time, God said, speak to the rock. And water will flow, and the people's needs will be met. And I don't know what it was, but, but something inside of Moses said, you know what, I, well, the first time, I struck the rock with, with water, and, and I'm afraid right now. Like, these people are ticked off. They're angry. So I can either go with what works. I know the staff works. I've seen it do a lot of great things. Or I can listen to God, who, who's been there for me before, but, but I know this works. Maybe it was some sort of, he thought he had some sort of mosaic power. He thought he was the one. He, said, he even says, do we, we really have to do this for you? Ultimately, Moses had a life over God attitude. 
He had a life over God posture. In doing this, Moses was successful in bringing water out of the rock. God, God, God saw a bigger need than Moses' disobedience. But in verse 12, he says to Moses and Aaron, the Lord says to Moses and Aaron, because you did not trust in me enough to honor me as holy in sight of the Israelites, because you said we, do we have to bring you water? Because you didn't do that, and because you didn't listen to me, you will not bring this community into the land I give them. Moses, even though God used him for, for many great things, and he was leading those people, in that moment, Moses went with what he knew, he went with his own pride, and he went with placing himself equal with God. Saying, you know, I can basically be God because I've done great things before God. Yeah, God's used me, but I think I got it this time. Plus, I'm also terrified, and I know this works. You see, God had a plan, and he, he ultimately used water to fulfill his plan. As we jump into the New Testament, in 1 Corinthians 10.4, there's a parallel to be made here. It says, they drank the same spiritual drink, for they drank from the spiritual rock that accompanied them. And that rock was Christ. So it's a parallel saying, that rock that, that, that Moses struck, we now see God's plan, the rock being Christ as an example, into salvation. That water that can satisfy the people's needs came from striking Christ. Just that's what we experience salvation in today. And I think of it this way. The second time, all Moses had to do was speak to that rock. All we have to do is ask God, God, please, I need you. I can't do this on my own. I'm not good enough. I'm not worthy. I'm a human being. I have sinful nature. I make mistakes. I need you, God. All we have to do is ask him and he will join us. But instead, we strike him. We get in the way of God's plan so many times because of our own selfishness, because of our own pride, because of our own ambitions, because of our own knowledge of what works in this world. My atheist friend, I asked him, I said, what, what makes you an atheist? Well, you see, I think, I think I've got some, some science, some principles, some things that I've seen work, some things that I've seen work in my life that I can apply, so I don't really need God anymore. Sounds familiar. Moses knew what worked. And he was willing to place himself on an equal with God in order to bring what he wanted to the people because of fear. See, since the Garden of Eden, since Adam and Eve were tempted by that, that serpent, he said, you know what, you, you, know what? You, you don't have to be afraid. If you eat from that tree, you will experience what it's like to be God. Original sin. The reason that we're all so messed up as people, it's been there from the beginning. You, you can be God. All you have to do is go do what he told you not to. And in doing so, you will experience what it's like to be like him. You can be God. Moses tried to be God. He tried to control the outcome. See, whether, whether you're a person who denies the existence of God altogether, whether you're someone who, who, who kind of thinks that he's, he exists, but he just doesn't have anything to do with our lives, or whether you're someone who, who attends church regularly and, and loves Jesus and you're devoted to him, a life over God posture exists when we try to be God. When we seek control. Because when we can control things, we minimize the opportunity in our own minds that failure is going to happen, that fear is going to happen, that we're going to be 
flat on our face, messed up, without hope. We think that we can do that. We can eliminate those things by just gaining some control. Pastor Mark said, when we, when we want control, we're trying to, to capture something. We're trying to take, take things into our own hands. I think of when I played hockey. I loved, I loved the game and I loved to play. And I, there was a certain time in my life where, where I felt like I was pretty awesome. I was about 13, shocker. Every 13-year-old kid thinks they're pretty awesome. And oftentimes they are. But I was definitely one of those kids. And you see, when I played hockey, I loved to have the puck on my stick. When I had the puck on my stick, I felt like I could control the game. If the coach would say, okay, number 42 or whatever, if he threw someone else out there to run the power play or run the plays, I felt like I didn't have control and it bothered me. I was afraid we're going to lose, you know, we're done. But when I had the puck on my stick, when I had control of the game, I felt like it was all going to be okay. And oftentimes when we lost, I found myself blaming myself even more. It's like, well, you're awful. You know, you controlled the game. You had the puck on your stick the entire time and you still lost. It's your problem. Oftentimes, we place all this responsibility on ourselves because we think we can take it, but when in all reality, we can't. We're not intended to. We're not intended to control everything because when we fail, it hits us in the face, and it's like, what now? I think of things that fail. I think, I think of marriages. And a life over God attitude to marriages is, okay, so I'm, like, here's this book. This, this really smart person wrote this book. I'm walking in the airport, and they always have the good books in the airport the ones that everyone reads, right? So you're walking along, it's like five healthy steps to a healthy marriage. Well, yeah, I'm sure th there's, a, there's great principles in there, but how many people pick up that book, read the principles, put down the book, and think that everything's gonna be okay? The promise that they once made in front of God to God with their spouse, with their partner for life, they then think that because they read some books, because they had a couple conversations, that they can kind of remove God from the situation, they got it. They know these smart people that are in airports know best. So we're going to apply those principles. I think of someone who has self-worth issues. Ten, ten healthy ways to find that you matter. Ten healthy ways to love your body, to love yourself. Well, awesome. There are some great things in there. But ultimately, when we remove God from that situation, we are going to find ourselves messed up and broken like we always do. Even in ministry, it's like ministry numbers are down. Or, or at work, numbers are down. What am I going to do? Am I going to listen to some, some other pastors at megachurches? Am I going to listen to the other companies that do things properly? You know, their social media is better than ours. We can just adjust some of these things. Well, yeah, sometimes those things are necessary. But if you are someone who, who values having God in and with your life, if you are removing him from the situation and just applying principles, applying practices, applying things that might work at one point or another, are you not living a life over God that you were never intended to live? You see, we, we replace a relationship with God with discernible principles, with better odds or guaranteed outcomes, or even, even with God's principles. You study the scriptures diligently. This is found in John chapter 5, verses 39 to 40. You study the scriptures diligently because you think that in them you have eternal life. And Jesus says, these are the very scriptures to testify about me yet you refuse to come to me to have life. He gives us the instruction manual, and he's also the mechanic. We need him. He is, he is the vessel. He is the, the vessel that, that we're trying to get to, and we're using God's word to float out there so we can learn more about him, so we can experience him. But oftentimes, we kind of just leave, leave him out of it. 
It says you study the scriptures diligently because you think that in them you have eternal life. These are the very scriptures that testify about me, testify about me the Son of God. Yet you refuse to come to me to have life. We have this indescribable tendency to seek control of everything in our lives. Comfort, health, finances, relationships. We seek control because fear exists by letting go. I know that sounds, that sounds the opposite of, of the Christian mindset, which is so true. But, but that's what we feel as human beings. If, if I have to let go of something, then I'm going to be afraid. Because it's hard to have faith in something when you can't see it. It's hard, it's hard to let go of, of my junk because I'm afraid of what could happen if it gets even worse. So I'm just going to try and control what I can. But by trying to control fear, we are creating fear. See, we were, we were never, ever supposed to live this life alone. We were never supposed to live this life controlling everything. The plan wasn't God using us to, to, to achieve our own goals, our own ambitions, our, our, a perfect rank on our report card at the end of life. That's not what the plan was. The plan was for him to be a part of our lives, to live life with us, so that in him we can receive salvation, eternal life, forgiveness, comfort in the hard times. There's certain, there's certain experiences that, that, like I said, that we try and place in ourselves. I mean, you're like, we, I got this. And there's times in our lives where, where I think we can realize these things are now beyond me. And this is a pivotal moment in, in coming out of a life over God attitude. When does it become too big for you? It becomes a God problem, not a, not a me problem. Only God can take this. That's a pivotal moment. And to get real with you for a second, this is one that over the last nine weeks of my life, I have genuinely realized how much I was living a life over God attitude without even realizing it. So just to, in case you're not aware, my dad nine weeks ago was diagnosed with a brain tumor, um, turned out to be stage four cancer. Um, so it's, it's been a tough time. And when we found out the news, the first day in the, in the hospital, we didn't even know what, if it was cancer yet or if it was what it was. But I'm sitting in the chair, and the doctor walks in, and he says, Mr. Krawchuk, you have a brain tumor. And I'll never forget the moment. Like, tears filled my eyes. I cry in, like, Disney movies. I cry at everything. So tears started flowing down my face. And the doctor kind of gave us some of the news, and then he left the room. And my dad turned, and he looked at me. And, and he didn't say... He didn't say, you know, it's going to be okay, Ryan, or, you know, it's, love you, son. He didn't say any of that. What he said to me is, serve God. Serve God. And I, and I know that. I wouldn't be here today if it wasn't from God performing miraculous things in my life, pulling me out of fires, pulling me out of struggles. I wouldn't be here today if it wasn't for God. But in that moment, in the, in the hardest moment that I can ever remember in my family, my dad turned to me and said, serve God. And honestly, my thought was, well, my whole life just kind of changed here in front of me. I don't really want to because I'm angry and I don't understand. And what did I try and do? I tried to take control of the situation. I tried to Google everything that could be wrong with him. I tried to Google how much time he might have left. 
I tried to Google all these things, and then I, and then I, I turned to my Bible, which is good. But in it, I read, do not fear. My favorite verse, Isaiah 41.10. So do not fear, for I am with you. But what I quickly found myself doing is listening to the do not fear part. Do not fear, do not fear, do not fear. It's, it's all throughout scripture, and it's so important to trust God amidst our struggle. But what I found myself doing is trying so hard not to fear based on my own strength, based on my own courage. You know, I'm, I'm a pastor. I work in a church. I, I, have, a, I have a degree in, in theology. I understand scripture. I get it. So I can do this. I've done it before. I found myself able to pull myself through it before. Me. I've done it. That's what I found myself doing without even realizing it. But without even realizing it, I had taken a life over God posture to my dad's illness. And I still would pray and I still tried to connect with God, but, but I was doing it under my own strength. And within, within weeks, I found myself saying, you know what, maybe this, maybe this whole thing isn't for me. Maybe I should go sell something. Maybe I should go work in sports or something. In trying to obtain control, I was quickly trying to be God. I was trying to realign my life based on what I wanted to do because I couldn't handle the fear, the questions. My dad's illness, I couldn't handle any of it, even though I was trying so hard to do it, even sometimes based on scripture, I was just leaving God out of it. And within weeks, I found myself saying, you know what, I know you have this call to ministry, but maybe you can, you can re, like, refocus your path a bit so you don't have to deal with some of the, the hurt. Maybe you can do that. I found myself trying to be God without even realizing it. Because I know I'm supposed to be standing here. I know I'm supposed to be with the youth. I know I'm supposed to be interacting with people, sharing the same love that gets my dad through every day, that gets me through every day, that's got me through so many times in my life. That's the God that I love sharing with people. But amidst me trying to control the situation and take scripture and, and kind of step away from God and be like, okay, thank you for this, this awesome book that is perfect. Thank you but I'm okay. And the more I told myself that, the more discouraged I became. See, without, without Christ holding the reins, we will end up off course and out of control. A life over God posture promises control. It's like, okay, you, you can control things. You can control what you believe in. You can control what you apply to your life. You can control those things. But ultimately, if you take a life over God posture, just like I did sometimes without even realizing it. If you take a life over God posture, you are setting yourself up for a life without God. Just like in the garden, they were tempted. The enemy has a way of working his way into your thoughts, reminding you of things, presenting things to you that seem shiny and attractive that you want to run off and chase because it's less scary. But remember, a life over God is going to end up with a life without God. The Bible, God's word is so important. There are parts of a life over God attitude that are great. You need to know your scriptures. You need to read books. You need to have things to apply to your life that can help you. But ultimately, when things fail, because they do, we are not capable of doing this on our own. Israelites, they had uncertainty. They had thirst. They were afraid. Moses then took that upon himself. You know what? And he disobeyed God and he tried to do it himself. 
when re in reality, God is the only one who can satisfy us. We can't do that on our own. So I ask you today, do you find yourself amidst a life over God attitude in your circumstances, in your struggles? Maybe you're having a lot of questions. Maybe you're someone who, who you walked in here, you sat down, maybe with a friend, maybe for the first time, and you're like, okay, so I don't even know what's happening. I don't know who this God is. I'm not sure. I've learned a lot of stuff in school. I, I, I've, I just don't know. Maybe you find yourself there. Maybe you're someone who, who you just need control of things in your life, and you know what? You've fallen flat on your face, but you simply can't let go. Maybe that's you. Or maybe you're someone right now that you, you walked in here and, and you sat down and until something that, that God spoke through me, you've been trying to do it yourself. And you found yourself failing, you found yourself afraid, you found yourself trembling, you found yourself sad, you found yourself scared, and you didn't even realize what the issue was. It's like, you know what, I'm trying to read my Bible, I'm trying to pray, I'm, try, I'm trying to do all these things, I'm trying to, I'm trying to take care of my kids, my, my job, my family, and it just doesn't seem to be working. Where's your relationship at with God? You know, all we have to do is speak. All we have to do is ask him to join us. And he will. It's his promise. He won't leave our side. He will be forever with you in every circumstance if we ask. Part of that requires us to get down from where we were never intended to be. We were never intended to be on the kitchen table when mom's yelling at you, get down from there. We were never intended to be over God, over authority. That wasn't what we were intended to do. So we need to step down. And that's the only way that God can truly penetrate your heart is humbling yourself and saying, you know what, I can't anymore. I don't want to. I'm afraid, yeah, but here's some control that I am so grasping. And you need to slowly open it up and let him take it from you. And if that's you, whether you find yourself in any of those situations, any of those circumstances, I want to close by quickly just praying for you. God, uh, we love you. We do. And we know, God, that you are the only true God, the only true God that, that has the power to save, to forgive, to comfort, to give the peace that we don't even understand. God, you are the only one who can do that. So I pray for these people, God, no matter, no matter where they fall, in any of these circumstances. We don't know, God, but you do. So I pray right now that you would just make yourself so real on the hearts of each individual sitting in here, God, that if there are things that they are struggling with, wrestling with, God, that are causing uh, uh, a block, causing something to impede a relationship with you, God, that you would break that down, that you would enter their hearts, enter their minds, and God, that they would be able to put aside the things and release control over the things that were only intended for you. God, we know each and every person is here today. God, I thank you for your love, for your comfort, and for your sacrifice um, by sending your son. We love you so much, God. We thank you for all you're doing. In your name, amen.